Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet together this morning, as we can every Sunday, uh, and that we can hear your word being taught. We thank you so much for Steve, and we pray for him today as he preaches from this passage, Romans 9 to 11. Please help him to present its message faithfully and truthfully. And we ask, as always, that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your scripture, and that you'd help us to understand. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, just as Steve is going to be preaching from three chapters of Romans, there's um, three readings from different chapters, from three different chapters of Romans this morning. So the first reading is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then the final reading is from chapter 11, verses 25 to chapter 12, verse 1. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written... The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Um, if you're visiting today, no, we don't normally look at three chapters of the Bible, but we are today. Um, why? Well, maybe because Lyndall and I go on long service leave on Thursday, so this is the last chance I say, get to say whatever I want to say. No. Um, it is another time, though, where you need the Bible open in front of you to see where we're heading, so no apologies for that. If you um, don't have a Bible, I'm sure there'll be some on the table up the back there. Um, and it is one of those times where in 22 and a half minutes, I won't be able to cover everything. So you'll have other questions and things to keep talking about, but hopefully we'll have a, a solid overview of these three chapters. Some would say, though, that um, Romans 9, 10 and 11 could be kind of snipped out of the Bible, out of the pages of the Bible. Because if you look at how chapter 8 finishes, you've had eight chapters of explaining the way God saves us by his mercy, free gift. And then you turn to chapter 12, verse 1. I mean, you look at the way chapter 8 finishes with an amazing um, praise to God for the way that he's done these things. And then you turn to 12, verse 1, therefore, in view of God's mercy. So you could just snip out chapters 9 to 11. And in a way, that would be simpler because it's a fairly complicated bit of the, bit of the Bible. But you can't do that because when you look through these chapters, they humble us. They humble us so that when you come to 12 verse 1, you appreciate God's mercy that much more. Um, the, I reckon the key verse to be um, toying with and turning over in your mind will be 11 verse 25. It says in 11 verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign action humbles us, takes things out of our control and humbles us before God, motivates us so that when you come to 12 verse 1, yes, we will be wanting to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God as we understand his mercy. So chapter 12 verse 1, I reckon it needs to be read in the light of chapters 9, 10 and 11 and everything that came before, but 9, 10 and 11 they could be the heart of this book as you understand God's mercy and his kindness. Look at how it starts. So um, chapters 9, 10, 11, we're just going to kind of do the, the flyover to begin with. But look at how it starts. 9 verse 2 says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. That is impossible. I mean, look back to chapter 8. It cannot happen. But you can hear the apostle's heart, can't you? His anguish. It's like he's saying, it's out of my control. I can't do this. I can't make my people want to live for God. And if you're like me, it resonates with my feelings about family and friends who are suppressing the truth about God. Anguish in your heart. And then look at 10 verse 1. So 9 verse 2, 10 verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That's our prayer too, isn't it? For people we know. Because we know that salvation isn't our work. I mean, we will do everything we can to explain the gospel, but we know in the end, it's God at work in people's hearts that changes them and saves them. And so we pray earnestly. And Paul's anguish in 9 verse 2 and his prayer in 10 verse 1, they're like ours, but it's different. 
because here Paul's focusing in on a particular um, race of people, a particular people, a special people, the Old Testament people of Israel. And so you look at their privileged position. So I come back to chapter 9 again. 9 verse 4 goes, theirs is the adoption to sonship. This is the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the, the human ancestry of the Messiah, of Jesus. Israel are a special people. And so what you're looking at here in chapters 9, 10 and 11 is the big problem that this special people, this chosen people, this nation of Israel have turned their back on the Messiah the king, the Lord that, that God has sent. Um, along the way through Romans, you would have seen this, this line in the early chapters where it goes, first for Jew, then for Gentile. And you're kind of you're toying with that. You think, what does that mean? We're back considering that again. First for Jew, then for Gentile. On the one hand, Israel, they're God's chosen people. They're the descendants of Abraham. The people of God that, that he singled out and made promises to, saved from slavery in Egypt, made them his special people, gathered them to himself at, at Mount Sinai. But on the other hand... These people, they've rejected the Messiah, the Christ. When Jesus arrived, um, when Jesus came, the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, they rejected Jesus. They, in fact, they killed him. God's people rejected God's Messiah. And so it raises questions for us. Like, ha has God's promises failed? Has God's word failed? That's in 9 verse 6, you see the question. Or in 9 verse 14, is God unjust? I mean, why would he do something like that? And underlying the questions is the big one. Can you trust God if he's going to do something like that? So as we do this kind of flyover of chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're dealing with this problem of the nation of Israel that rejected their Messiah. And what do you make of that? And Paul addresses each of the questions that comes up using the Old Testament. So if you were to print out chapters 9, 10, 11 of Romans and highlight the Old Testament quotes, it would be more than half of it. It's stacks and stacks of the Old Testament thrown in here to show from the Old Testament that God hasn't broken his word. He argues from the Old Testament that God's word hasn't failed. So if you look at 9 verses 6 to 13, for example, he says, well, God never intended to declare all Israel righteous. That's my words, but that's what it's saying. He didn't ever intend to declare that whole nation of people righteous. Not all Israel are the true Israel. God selects, God chooses, and he always has done it that way. I mean, you look at Abraham's own family. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And then later he chooses Jacob over Esau. God's word hasn't failed. It's a simple matter of the fact that God chooses. Not all the nation of Israel descended from Abraham are the true Israel. And then you get to the next question in 9 verse 14, and it's tackling the idea that if God chooses, then is he unjust? Well, no, of course he's not. Look at 9 verse 18. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Down in verse 21, we're God's creatures. We don't have any right to question God. He's the boss. He does what he would like. Um, and then you see this idea in verse 22 that God's wrath, it actually, his judgment shows his power. And yet God's mercy in verse 23, his merciful choice, it reveals his glory. That's kind of the flyer of chapter 9, tackling the, the questions around how Israel could reject their Messiah. And then you come to chapter 10. And rather than God's word having failed, in chapter 10, Paul says, Israel are the ones who have failed. They've failed to listen to God. They've made up their own stuff. And Paul says the only way that any Israelite will be saved 
is if they acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ. In other words, if they have the same trust in God that Abraham had in chapter 4, where Abraham simply trusted God and his word. That's what makes you a descendant of Abraham in chapter 4. You put it all together and both Jew and Gentile, the Israelites and the nations, we're all saved the same way. And that is through faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And so the implication is we need to keep preaching the gospel. So Romans 9, 10, 11, they're tackling this problem of Israel's unbelief. Israel's unbelief, it doesn't undermine the gospel. In fact, it makes Paul want to preach the gospel that much more. And then you turn to chapter 11. In chapter 11, um, the Jewish rejection of Jesus is part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. Part of God's plan for the gospel to go to the non-Jews. So the Israelites rejecting Jesus is part of God's plan for the gospel to then go to the nations, to the Gentiles, in order to humble the Jews so that still more Jews will be saved. Do you get what's happening? The Jews reject, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the Jews get jealous, and some of them will be saved. That's the quick kind of flyover of these chapters. That's the shape of it. And I think 11 verse 25 is a key verse. So 11 verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may, be, uh, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Um, look carefully at those verses. See the word hardening? The hardening of Israel, it's intentional. It's purposeful. It's not a failure. It's meant to happen. In God's providence, the hardening of the Jews allows Gentiles to be included in God's people. The true Israel. And then you're still looking at verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 25. It calls this whole thing a mystery. It says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. In this case, a mystery isn't something that's incomprehensible. It's easy to comprehend. It's just that it was hidden. And now it's been made known. It was a mystery until it was revealed. Rather than a secret, uh, rather than a mystery as in incomprehensible, it's a secret that's now revealed or disclosed. Once you've been told it, it makes perfect sense. The mystery is that God would include the Gentiles, the nations. The mystery is that God's mercy extends both to Israel and to the nations. And when you think about it, that's humbling for a Jew, humbling for an Israelite. Maybe producing the kind of humility that could even lead to them being saved too. So, I mean, if you think about it, if you were a Jew, if you grew up in, under the Old Testament law with the covenants, if you had it drummed into you from birth that you were a holy nation, that you had to be different to the people around you, if you had it drummed into you that you weren't permitted to eat a particular foods, you weren't permitted to do things on the Sabbath, if you wore the law around your head, your forehead, if you had tassels on your clothing, if you wore that funny little cap on your head, you knew you were special. There's a pride that comes with being that particular Jew, the nation of Israel. But that pride might lead to conceit. 11 verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant about this mystery that Gentiles would be saved, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Conceit, it's destructive, isn't it? It's destructive to be conceited. It puffs you up with self-importance. It makes you be inconsiderate of other people. It makes you think that in some way 
you're better than them. And the worst kind of, of conceit is spiritual conceit. When we think that in God's eyes, we're better than other people. And if you ask me, it's not just the nation of Israel that can fall into that trap, is it? When you think that you're more, more worthy than others, that's the kind of conceit. And it was easy, I think, for the Jews to think that way. I mean, you see it in the Gospels. You read about the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law refused to associate with anyone who they decided would make them unclean. There's this kind of conceitedness about it. Or you see it in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius, a God-fearing Italian, calls Peter the apostle to visit him, Peter just can't put the two things together. God lowers that unclean food three times before the penny drops for Peter. The idea of Gentiles being included in God's people was unthinkable. But once the secret is made known, you see it all through the Old Testament. It was always the plan. Even when you look at the promises to Abraham, God promised he would bless all nations, all Gentiles through him. Here in Romans, the apostle, he's quoting chunks of the Old Testament, demonstrating that the mystery or the secret that Gentiles would be included in God's people, it's always been part of God's plan. He shows it from the Old Testament. And in chapter 11, he finishes with what we would call the, you know, the doxology, praising God and giving glory to God because his ways are way beyond anything we would think of doing. And so I think, yeah, 11 verse 25 is a key verse, but there's more you can gain from having a, a closer look through chapter 11. So let's try doing a bit of that now. Come back to the start of the chapter, to 11 verse 1. I'm not going to read it, but you look over it in your Bible in front of you. At the start of chapter 11, the question is, did God actually reject his people? Paul says the Israelites, their fall, it's not complete. That's what I think he's saying in verses 1 to 10. He starts with himself in verse 1. He's, he's an Israelite. Paul's an Israelite. And God revealed himself to Paul. Declared him to be righteous and sent him on a mission journey to the Gentiles. So God hasn't rejected his people. I mean, exhibit A, Paul or Saul was his name before. 11 verse 2 hints at the fact that within Israel, there are those that God has chosen, those God foreknew, it says. No, God hasn't rejected his people. Um, 11 verses 3 to 4 recalls, uh, Paul recalls that God has always saved a remnant, a remnant Israel. You see it through the Old Testament. When we look through 1 and 2 Kings, you would have seen it. Um, he points to the example of Elijah. Elijah thought he was the only one left serving God, and God set him straight and said, I've preserved another 7,000. Paul says the same, it's the same now in verse 5. The same now as it was then. God, he chooses a remnant. He saves a remnant. He's faithful to his promises to his nation. He hasn't rejected them all. Their fall isn't complete. There's people within Israel that God is saving. God chooses a remnant by his grace. Um, there's nothing about the remnant to make them more desirable. It's an act of God's mercy, his unmerited grace that God would choose to save any of the Israelites. Nothing about Paul that makes him special that God would save him. It's just God's choice. And it's an act of faithfulness to the promises God made to Israel that he finds anyone to save from this people. So 11 verse 6 and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. You know, the thing that makes grace a gift is the fact that you can't earn it. It's the fact that it's not something you deserve. It's undeserved. So within the physical nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, there's a remnant that God saves. He keeps his promises and his covenants alive through this remnant, these select 
people in the nation of Israel. The rest of Israel, God confirms in their rejection of him or he hardens them. 11 verse 7. Um, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. He's quoting the Old Testament again, and the language is fairly important. There's those that God elects, he chooses, whom God mercifully changes them, spares them, keeps them. And there's those that God hardens, confirms them in what they've already chosen, the direction they're already heading in. Um, Romans, uh, it, the, the, here it echoes chapter 9, the description of Pharaoh there. It echoes chapter 1 of Romans, the way God gives us over. We suppress the truth about God, God hardens. He gives us over. It's the same sort of idea. The way God gives us over in chapter 1, it's, it's purposeful. It's an act of judgment on God's part. And the way God hards Israel, it's also purposeful. And God said he would do it. So if you go back to 10 verse 19, Paul quotes Deuteronomy there. Deuteronomy 32 verse 21. If you were to read Deuteronomy 32 verse 21, it says, They made me jealous by, doing, uh, by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I'll make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. Israel rejected their God. They prostituted themselves to the gods of the nations around. And so God will make them jealous, envious, by instead turning his affection to the nations, to the outsiders, the non-Israelites, by welcoming people who are not his people. So God's hardening of his people Israel, it's purposeful. So 11 verses 1 to 10, the gist of that is Israel's fall. It's not complete. 11 verses um, 11 to 24, I reckon it's saying God, um, Israel's fall, it's not final. It's like they stumbled, but they're not completely fallen. And Israel's stumble in verse 11 is part of a bigger plan, a plan for bigger blessing. So 11 verse 11, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Israel's tripping over, they're stumbling over the Messiah, has meant the gospel has gone to the nations. Um, you think about that, and as Tom pointed out at the start of church, we're the B-list, we're the B-team. There's nothing about us to make us worthy of God's choice or of God's mercy. God's mystery, yeah, it's humbling to Jews to think that non-Jews would be saved, would become part of God's people. But it's also humbling to us Gentiles because we don't deserve it. We're the outsiders. Israel's um, rejection um, is part of a plan for greater blessing and it drives us to trust God's sovereignty and God's hand because he's the one who's in control. God hasn't forgotten Israel. So reading from halfway through verse 11, rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? You get the gist of it? Israel rejecting the Messiah means Gentiles are saved, but how much better would it be for all Israel to be saved, for any of the Israelites to be saved, even if it's motivated by them being jealous of us Gentiles? Israel's fall, it's part of this bigger plan 
for greater blessing. And then Paul says the same thing in different words. He kind of works this around and around. So if you look at verse 13, 11 verse 13, I'm talking about you Gentiles, us, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and some of them, to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And he goes over this logic time and again. Israel's fall, it's part of this plan to see the gospel go to the nations to make Israel jealous so that more of Israel will be saved. Um, Back in chapter um, 9, verse 2, Paul says his heart aches for his people. He wants them all to be saved. So what does he do about it? He preaches the gospel to the Gentiles in the hope that his own countrymen will also want to hear. It's the kind of pattern that you see happening through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 2, there's this massive conversion of Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. But unconverted Jewish Jews, they become jealous and persecution of the Christians breaks out. Stephen ends up being stoned and the persecution drives the new Christian, um, Christian Jews, Christian Israelites, across the known world, and they take the gospel with them to the Gentiles. See, the Jewish rejection of the gospel spreads the gospel to the nations, to everyone around. But Paul, a Jew of Jews, he's saved. Um, and Paul is appointed by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And as you read through Acts, Paul comes into each town he comes to, He'll try the Jews first, first for the Jews. When they turn their backs on the gospel, he'll go to the Gentiles. And that pattern continues on through, um, through Acts. So you can see um, Romans 11 unfolding as you read through Acts. So 11 verses 1 to 10, Israel's fall, it's not complete. A remnant remains. 11 verses 11 to 16, Israel's fall, it's not final. It's part of this bigger plan. You'll see more Jews be saved down the track. And then Paul, in verses 17 to 24, so we're just kind of stepping through chapter 11. If you look at 17 to 24, he uses this illustration of an olive tree and the Gentiles, if you like, being grafted in. Um, We've got a lemon tree in the backyard. And if you look at the bottom of the lemon tree, you'll see the grafting that's been happened. There's a good root system with the lemon tree put on top. Lemons apparently don't have the same kind of root system. But if you can imagine a Chinese elm, it's 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 a weed. They're prolific. We had to get one out of our yard. It was mighty hard to kill. If you can imagine someone grafting in a Chinese elm onto that same root system our lemon tree's on, I mean, that would be stupid, wouldn't it? That's the kind of picture you got here. That's the image that's been painted for us in 11 verse 17. God's grafted in the undesirables. It's an illustration that serves to humble us as Gentile Christians. We're the undesirables. Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, a Chinese elm, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. As Gentile Christians grafted in, don't start looking at Israel and saying, what a bunch of gooses. They rejected their Messiah. Don't become conceited like that. Um, you keep reading, God can welcome the Jews back any time he likes. So verse 24, after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, 
the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. They'll fit back in much better than you ever did. God's mercy is incredible and it humbles us. And we need to continue being humbled by God's kindness. So you look at chapter 11 of, of Romans, and what you've got here is the mystery of God being unfolded and explained for us. The fact that God would save us, Gentiles. It's humbling for the Jew to see that happening, and it's humbling for the Gentile to be part of it. We're fully dependent on the mercy of God. And then turn to the last little bit of the passage. So from verse 25, um, the mystery of the mercy of God is here. So mystery of God is that Jews and Gentiles together would experience the mercy of God. You look across the chapter so far, Israel's fall is not complete, nor is it final. It's part of this bigger blessing. Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Have a look at verse 26. All Israel will be saved. There's some who say that Jesus won't return until the physical nation of Israel, the descendants of, of Abraham, have all returned. There's some who argue that before Jesus returns, you'll see this massive surge of Jewish conversions. I don't think that's necessarily what verse 26 is talking about. I think it's a promise that all the true Israel will be saved. God will keep his covenant. All the remnant from across all generations of Israelites, all the remnant in those generations, God will save. I don't read that as a promise of a massive return of Jews, but rather a statement that the full number of God's people will return. And when you think about it, I mean, what happens to Israel as a physical nation? We're not on about seeing Jerusalem restored anymore that we're on about needing the temple restored. I mean, think about the gospel. We don't need the temple anymore. Remember the curtain torn in two? It's done away with. Jesus is our temple. Some will argue that evangelism to the Jews is a slap in the face to God and his people. I mean, why do you need to convert God's people? We'll have a look at Romans 9 to 11 again. Have a look at verse 28 of chapter 11. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that, they may, so that he may have mercy on all of them. Look at that. Look back into chapter 10. Evangelism of Jews, it's necessary. Paul did it. Attempted to. They must be saved in the same way that Gentiles are saved, through accepting Jesus as the Messiah. There's no other way to be saved. It's not like you get into heaven and you've got a member's stand, the people of God of Israel there in the member's stand. It's not like that. We're all treated the same. The mystery of God's mercy is that God would include us Gentiles together with Jews in his plans for salvation. The truth of the mercy of God, as you look at it in these chapters, it's humbling. It humbles the Jews and it humbles us Gentiles. There's absolutely nothing in and of ourselves that we can do to make God choose us. We can't do that. And you look at, um, look at that verse again, 11 verse 25, conceit is a dangerous thing. Conceit is a very dangerous thing. Pride is a horrible thing. 
And there's nothing worse than spiritual pride, thinking that somehow you're better in God's eyes than someone else. So across Romans, we see the Apostle Paul explaining and defending the gospel that he's preaching. He wants to come to Rome to preach it there. He wants to take it out to Spain and further. Across chapters 1 to 8, Paul describes how much we need help. In chapters 1 to 3, we all suppress the truth about God. In chapters 4 and 5, God makes his enemies his friends. It's purely a gift. Um, verses, uh, chapter 6 and 7, he describes the Christian battle with sin while we wait for Jesus to return. In chapter 8, we've got the assurance that God is working for our good. And then in chapters 9 to 11, Paul explains the amazing way that God includes Jews and Gentiles in a way that humbles us, drives us to our knees. So that you come to 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, understanding God's mercy in these 11 chapters of Romans. Knowing God's mercy, it it needs to fill us with thankfulness and motivate us to praise and glorify God, and it needs to humble us. I know we've looked across three chapters very quickly. There's lots to talk about, so let's pray um, above all that we would be humble and receive God's mercy, and let's keep talking about these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're sorry for the ways that we deceive ourselves and become proud and conceited. And we thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness in allowing us to hear the truth of the gospel and the truth of forgiveness through Jesus' death in our place. Thank you for the way that you've used other people like Paul to help us come to know the truth of the gospel. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be grafted into your people. Thank you for forgiveness, for new life, for new hope. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be at work in us and change us. And Lord, please help us as we seek with anguish to see others come to know you too, both Jews and Gentiles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.